Welcome back to Do We Like Movies? Uh, I'm your host, Angel. And I'm your true crime host, Javier. <laughs> okay. I'm going to try to do the entire episode in my true crime voice. Good luck. Yeah, fuck that. That's kind of hard. My, <laughs> my allergies are fucking terrible right now. That is not the voice to make. Um, okay, so this week, you know, we're, we, this is our, we're taking a break from Star Wars week. Thank God, holy to shit. Do, to do something else. And uh, we decided when we were looking at Avengers Endgame, we talked about, and I think we briefly mentioned it during the episode, I am a huge fan of Robert Downey Jr. and Mark Ruffalo together, and that all stems from this film that we're talking about this week. We're not going to really justify it. We just really wanted to do the Zodiac movie. Yeah, for sure. Um, but it's still, you know, it, it does relate a lot to the film that we did a couple weeks ago just because, or last week, just because, you know, we do have that affection for these actors now. Now that for the past 10 years, we've known them as superheroes that we've seen in multiple different movies. And by the time this episode comes out, because the Far From Home trailer just dropped, the, I mean, the, the our listeners will know that Jake Gyllenhaal will also be in the MCU. So that means our three main characters yeah. of this film are all MCU heroes. So it all it's all relative, baby. Yeah. Um, so this week, yeah, we're talking about Zodiac, the 2007 film from David Fincher. And this movie is pretty exciting for us to get to, mainly because we are from the Bay Area. So a lot of this movie... It covers places that we know very well, and also just the lore of the Zodiac Killer is so prevalent. At least, I don't know how much it is amongst like younger people now, but there is a point, and I feel like there's a point in everyone's life where you kind of develop some sort of curiosity over it. I tell you from my time working with youth that the biggest meme for like a year was that Ted Cruz is the Zodiac Killer. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, when I was doing yeah. research for this episode, I loved they listed a top 10 of Zodiac Killer suspects, and they still include Ted Cruz at number 10. <laughs> but they also include a verb in there, like a little blurb that says, uh, contrary to popular belief in this uh, myth, <laughs> Ted Cruz was born two years after the Zodiac Killing started, so... You couldn't possibly be the Zodiac Killer. You never heard of baby murderers? <laughs> but I I guarantee you that there are a bunch of MAGA idiots out there who probably believe that myth. Ooh, shots fired! <laughs> patoo, patoo. <laughs> but you know, like, it's just hilarious that even though it's a meme now, the Zodiac legitimately held the Bay Area from the late 60s into the early 70s. Almost damn near in the 80s, just had a death grip on our psyche, and we still experience it to this day, you know? It's interesting because the Bay Area itself is such a large area, right? And in Robert Downey's character, Paul Avery, even says it in the film at one point, that, you know, more people die in the East Bay commute than the Zodiac Killer ever killed. Mm -hmm. But it's the infamy... Of his correspondence with the San Francisco Chronicle that I think really is what made him such a celebrity 
and glorified, like, you know, in, in the eyes of people who grew up here. You know, because in actuality, and we'll get into it in this film, I really only accredit him with the date, with the murders that you can prove. And when we're all looking at that together, that's like, what, five or six people? Yeah. Now, here's the thing, like you said, that we know of maybe five or six people. But if you were to believe Zodiac, Zodiac, he claims victims from as early as, like, the early 60s, late 50s, going as far back as Riverside. And, you know, like, even in other states, like, those are some of the theories I've heard. So he, like, if you were to believe his letters, yeah, something like 17 people is pretty insane. So, um, I guess we should just get into some of our experiences with this film. And, uh, what's your experience of the film when it was coming out? I actually, when it came out, I was so terrified. So, this is 2007, right? 2007, I would have been maybe a junior in high school. The thought of Zodiac inspiring the movie, the David Fincher film inspiring a copycat or inspiring like a resurgence of zodiac even though as much of a uh, irrational fear as that is i had such a fear about it i did not want to go watch it so this i'm like i think it took me a couple years to actually watch this movie and even then it was in bits and pieces and that's because ever since i was a kid zodiac like intrigued me because i don't get him like you know and i don't think i want to get him i don't think anyone should want to understand somebody like that because there's nothing to get but it was just this idea that somebody can do such is capable of such violence for no reason it tripped me up you know and even now as an adult like like what Unfortunately, we live in a world where random acts of violence are way too commonplace, right? We're past the age of serial killers in many ways, right? Like, um, serial and and the Halloween movie that came out last October, they even make a joke about it in it. Is that, you know, well, not a joke, but they even make reference to the fact that serial killers just aren't a big thing anymore Mm -hmm. because what is more disastrous and harmful to the general public now is these mass shootings that we have going on from anywhere from churches to movie theaters to schools, to shopping malls to like festivals. Like the fact that somebody can come in and just like do these, uh, just again, random acts of violence and just eliminate so many people in such a short amount of time. That's terrifying. But something about the Zodiac of, again, not having rhyme or reason while still being so methodical, that's what terrified me. He's the original. And I think that's, in many ways, he is the original, like, serial killer, you know, that, that, you know what else it is, too? Like, he's kind of like a supervillain, or at least he seems like he thinks of himself as a supervillain. He, apparently, he has a very high opinion of himself. (laughs) So, it's, you know, it's... It evolves, and I kind of want to get into it more as we're into this movie. Uh, I guess my last bit of speaking about my experience with Zodiac, um, you know, he's kind of the, like, the Zodiac Killer is the boogeyman that's been, like, in my head since I was nine, because I think that was the first time I heard about it. It was a buddy of mine, and, I mean, a buddy of mine in, like, you know, when I was in fourth grade, tells me, hey, have you ever heard of the Zodiac Killer? 
And I was like, no. So my friend's dad grew up in the Bay Area during that time, so he fucking knows all about this. Again, another interesting thing is that you and I have grown up with people that lived through that panic of the Zodiac Killer, right? And, like, the the way my friend described him, just like with the executioner's hood, the get-up, and then just, like, the ritualism behind his attacks and shit, like... It, it, it was it's just like the ultimate thing to like induce fear right so now that i'm an adult and now that i actually have kind of a, a an intrigue into the world of true crime and horror and things like that like that just makes me even more excited to delve into you know review this film and delve into this case just a little bit because it's such a part of you know our zeitgeist if you want to say i don't know if i use that term correctly <laughs> but you know it's such a it's such a part of the bay area culture the bay area's history you know yeah so i think more more kind of getting into it what's your experience with david fincher's movie when's the first time did he watch it this film maybe i was in college and i would catch it on like spike tv and I, even then it was bits and pieces but I always had that fear like, oh my god, I don't want to watch this anymore. This is too real, too real, too real. And then so complete sitting, earlier this week when when I watched the film for the podcast, wow. it was my first time sitting wow. it from beginning to end. Oh my god. <laughs> okay. So my experience with this movie is I watched it when it came out in theaters. Um, when it was coming out, I was a senior in high school and... You know, they made us such a big deal about it in the local news where, you know, it was kind of like advertising to get you into the movie, right? Where they were talking about, oh, well, Zodiac Killer never got caught, you know, and the dun, case dun, remained dun. open, so anything could happen at any time. And, you know, like, I I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, I also had a group of friends. Uh, there was four of us all together. Uh, that year, we would just... Because my buddy was the first one with the car and, like, the ability to drive us places. Like, we loved going out, like, all the time together, like, you know, with my buddies. And one of the evenings that we decided to go out was, uh, let's go, you know, we went to a theater in Emeryville. And we're like, all right, let's go watch Zodiac. <laughs> it's funny because we were just, like, scaring each other the entire time that we were <laughs> on the way over there. To the point where... Um, there's a, there's like a little, when you're entering the highway to get on the 80 towards Richmond. Oh, from Emeryville? From yeah, Emeryville. Yeah. There's like. That creepy ass back road. Yeah. You know? And one of my buddies who was driving decided that that was a perfect time to get us. And it was like, you're, you're talking like midnight, right? That we're like oh leaving. Oh my God. You and he it. decided to slow down. And turn off all the lights in his car. Oh, <laughs> and he turned around and did an evil laugh to all the <laughs> He just heard all the guys in the back going, no! Everyone just starts panicking. <laughs> but uh, when I saw this movie, I swear to God, we all thought we were going to go watch a horror movie. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that I discovered the first time is that I felt disappointment when really? I watched the movie. Because... This movie is really two different things in one. You know, you see the title Zodiac and you feel like you're going to go in to watch like a serial killer uh, horror movie. Mm -hmm. But that's not what this movie is about. Nope. And I don't think I was at an age that I could appreciate it. Mm -hmm. But when the movie came out in video, 
I bought it at Blockbuster, right? Blockbuster mm-hmm. would sell you all these used DVDs at the time and stuff. And I was like, oh, I thought that movie was that. pretty decent. Yeah. And, you know, I'll watch it again. Sure, why not? When I really started watching it at home, and I had seen it several more times, um, this is now, like, one of my favorite movies ever. And Easy. it is so appropriate that the three guys on the cover... Or, like, you know, the poster of the film are Mark Ruffalo, Robert Downey Jr., and uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Because the three of these guys are the main characters of this film. And that this movie is not about the Zodiac Killer himself. Mm-hmm. It's really about people who have become obsessed with him and trying to find him. And I think the first time, I just wasn't able to make that connection. Like, I wasn't able to go on the journey that the movie wanted me to go on, mm-hmm. you know? Like, because I didn't appreciate a lot of what it was doing. Because besides the fact that this movie is is staying very close to a lot of the case files on the Zodiac Killer, uh, you know, stories, to the point where it's starting with the second killing, because that's the one that was more... That's where the letters began, right? Yeah, that's where the cinematic yeah. part of this story would have begun. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, it even kicks off from a point like that. And... Um, I just there a, there is a second section of this movie that delves much more into mystery and mm-hmm. noir and is much more of a procedural and I didn't again I didn't appreciate those things when I was younger I do now Oh yeah There's, that's your jam <clears throat> like if you love seeing the actual process of investigation what what investigation really looks like this is your this is your investigation porn right here. <laughs> well, not just that, but the style as well, right? Yep. Like this movie also delves into a lot of the 60s and 70s cop drama television shows. Like mm-hmm. Streets of San Francisco, there's a lot of that in this movie. Yeah. In the style. Um Bullet, like, you know, the the actual the actual guy Dave Toski. Dave Toski, like, you know, they he inspired Steve McQueen the the way he was wearing his gun. Like yeah. or the same thing, the fact that Dirty Harry Dirty Harry, yeah. Yep, being directly inspired by Dave Toski and his obsession with the Zodiac. Like this guy is a super cop. Yeah. And um one of the most infamous detectives of all time. To the point where <clears throat> Where I think uh, supposedly even George Lucas named, I don't know what it was, but he named something in one of his films after Toski. Because Toski was just infamous that way. Yeah. Um, I think that's... Um... He's like a real life Commissioner Gordon. Yeah. In terms of like, in terms of just like famousness. <laughs> yeah. Like if, like hero cops aren't really something you hear too much about. Well, especially I mean, these days, right? Because there's a lot of yeah. there's a lot of more controversial opinions on law enforcement, mm-hmm. which you know even <clears throat> even I have trouble with movies that fetishize law enforcement way too much. Mm-hmm. And I'm not the only one. <clears throat> and there's a lot of movies that do that. And you know whatever whatever you feel is whatever you feel. But but you know yeah again this is one of those things that really only could have been done in the 70s maybe. Mm-hmm. You know the, you know this is very much. Uh, I don't want. Oh God! I just. I love this movie, man. <laughs> like I. Spoiler alert! But God damn it, this movie just hit all the you know all the things that they're in my jam. But you know, before we before we jump into the into our review or dissection, like I w- was mentioning earlier on the on the IG page, um, a good bit of this film is based on well, almost the the entire film is based on uh, Robert Graysmith's 
uh, book of the same name, Zodiac. Yep. Now, which which I have listened to an audio book format. Mm-hmm. Ahead of this podcast. So it's important before we begin that, uh, yes, this this episode will have some true crime aspects. We want to remind our audience that this is still a dissection and review of the film Zodiac. And although we will include some true crime aspects because it's impossible not to, the same way we did with our Conjuring episode, um, in no way, shape, or form do, do we say take Zodiac, the film, for its word. You know? No. like. It's definitely, it's one of those films that, uh, much like Conjuring, you had to take with a huge grain of salt. Well, what I like about the film itself, too, is that even though Robert Graysmith does have an opinion about where this goes, he even drops, like, something in there. He even drops a raisin of doubt, as well, mm-hmm. in the movie, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. So, you know, b- before we continue, we want to also, of course remind folks that we go into this review we go into this dissection and true crime discussion with the utmost respect possible for those that did pass away um that being said for those of you that don't know david david fincher he is some of the director or you know the the movies that he directed there of note include aliens (laughs) three that one isn't of note but he also directed fight club he directed crap Seven, was he seven? Yeah, seven was his first movie. After after Alien Three, Seven was actually his arrival party. You're gonna hate me because I thought that was um, David Lynch. (laughs) Surprise! I almost just want to start this episode all over again (laughs) after something that's stupid. (laughs) He also did Social Network back in 2010, and in 2014 he created or he directed the hit Gone Girl. So the film was written by James Vanderbilt. I'm sorry, the script was written. You can't write a film. <laughs> but he uh, wrote the script for The Rundown, one of my personal favorite adventure movies. What? Shut up. The Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2. Well, the reason why he's credited on those is because Vanderbilt was actually picked by Sam Raimi and he was supposed to be the scriptwriter for Spider-Man 4. Really? And, uh, which was the John Malkovich as the the Vulture movie. I'm so mad I'm never going to get that movie. Yeah, especially, like, when you find out that, yeah, this guy just did Zodiac. This was right off of Zodiac, too. Yep. Because Zodiac came out the same year as Spider-Man 3. So Mm -hmm. they were really good trying to course correct it at some point. And his script is apparently so prevalent that there are elements of it that go all the way to Spider-Man Homecoming. Really? Well, the idea... I think some of the portrayal of the Vulture like goes into that as well. He also wrote the script for Independence Day Resurgence back in 2016. Okay. And also for the 2018 hit? Question mark? The Meg. About the Megalodon. I hear it's good, and it's on my HBO queue, so I'll, I'll see if I get around to it. Also, he wrote the script for The Losers. Well, it was another comic book that no one really knew about, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But, um, so, I mean, he, he, you know, he has a lot of experience writing pretty decent films. And especially now that you told me that about the Spider-Man 3, or I mean, sorry, Sp- what well, would have been Spider-Man 4, now I'm super sad, especially after watching Zodiac. <laughs> <laughs> so, the movie opens up with the San Francisco Bay Area, um, and right away, you know, the style of this movie is great. 
I love the establishing shots. Yep. And the one thing that they did as well before you even saw, you know, one frame of film is they used the classic Warner Brothers and Paramount logos from the 1960s, 70s. I did peep that. And uh, then next thing you know, there you are sitting in a car in Vallejo. And um, it's interesting to see what Vallejo was like in the 1960s because obviously our only reference of that city is from the 90s onward. Yep. So, and Vallejo is a town that is much different than it was in the 1960s. So, my understanding of Vallejo is it was a very uh, blue-collar town. You know, not much different from now. But, you know, like... The demographic changed. Very much so. And, you know, the, the this was back in the day when working at one of the local oil refineries was a big deal. And that can, you know... Like, it was, like, I hate saying it because it's such a fucking cliche at this point, but it really was a simpler time. You know, like, this is where being a waitress, can you can support your family, <laughs> and this is where being a school janitor was a big deal, you know? Like, uh, unfortunately, times have changed, and definitely living in the Bay Area isn't as simple as it was oh God, at yeah. this time. <laughs> so, it begins July 4th, 1969. And we are introduced to two characters, Michael Majot and Darlene Farron, who are driving up to a lover's lane of sorts out yeah. in Vallejo. Yeah, at Blue Rock Springs Park in Vallejo. Blue Rock Springs Park. So, and you know, at this point, they're sitting in the car, they're talking, it looks like, you know, they're vibing for a bit. She's visibly older than he is. Very much so. Michael Majot is not a large adult in the slightest. They actually even bring attention to the fact that Majot looks like he's wearing layers in the middle of the summer. So this looks like... He was, I think he was legitimately wearing layers. Because he was a tiny person. Like, you know? Um, And... For those who watch Boy Meets World, you'd probably recognize the actor who played Mike Majot. Uh, he played Minkus, the uh, the nerdy kid from season one of Boy Meets World. Are you serious? Yeah. That's hella funny. So, they go up to this lover's lane. You know, they're vibing, they're hanging out for a little bit. And then, suddenly this car pulls up behind them very slowly. And the lights are on, it freaks them out. So, immediately, Majot tells Darlene, you know, hey, you know, get 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 your license and registration stuff ready. Because they feel like, well, it looks like Majot's freaked out. He thinks, like, they're, they're not supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. And then this guy comes up with a light, you know, uh, a flashlight. And then uh, before Majot can even say, hey, how can I help you, officer? He gets lit up with the, you know, by by this guy with the gun. And immediately gets shot in the neck. And then before Darlene can even react, she gets lit up too. Something like eight shots to her chest or something like that. So at this point, the shooter, unidentified shooter, starts walking back to his car. And Majot tries to jump into the back seat. And the guy, the shooter comes back and ends up like, you know, double tapping him again and starts firing into the back of the car. So at this point, Majot looks like, for all intents and purposes, should have died. The man walks back to his car and drives away. And right off the bat, 
from what I saw on film to what I've heard, and a lot of my a lot of my information for the Zodiac case comes from uh, Monster uh, Zodiac, a po- an investigative podcast mm-hmm. where they covered the Atlanta Monster. And based on what the investigators talked about and how they were able to put together, that was damn near like a point, like frame for frame recreation of what investigators think happened that night. Mm-hmm. I was like, holy shit, <clears throat> that is crazy attention to detail. Yeah. And it also should be pointed out that uh, that the director, David Fincher, is a native of the Bay Area. So he has a somewhat personal connection to this, even though he, I think he's from like Marin. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, it, it, it's, it's all the details in this come directly out of the files that, uh, that Robert Grayson, Graysmith saw, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when he was doing research for his book. So we cut from that um, from that scene to the Zodiac Killer calling the police department and basically admitting that he was the one who killed the kids right after he did it and talking about how the, the initial killing of Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday that came before that at Lake Herman Road in Benicia, so this, which was the Christmas before yeah. this killing, uh, he takes responsibility for that as well. And that is the birth of the Zodiac. For all intents and purposes, as far as uh, investigators are concerned. Yeah. So, the movie cuts to a month later, and the San Francisco Chronicle gets a crank, what they think is a crank letter. Well, before that, I love that this movie opens up with a CGI recreated version of what San Francisco looked like in 1969. Which, we don't really pay a lot of attention to it, but if you look at a lot of the roads... Um, nearby where the ferry building is and stuff like that. There used to be like double-decker highways in San Francisco. And a lot really? of it was... So if you pay close attention to that scene when it's getting you close up to the to the ferry building where it says Port of San Francisco and all that good stuff, mm-hmm. you'll see a CGI version of those double-decker highways that were there. Dude, that's so crazy how San Francisco looks so different like and, and 60 years ago. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and I think it's also worth noting that this movie... And then there's the 1978 remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers that also takes place in San Francisco. The one with Daniel Craig and I forgot who else. No, no, no. No, 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 no. Not the 70s. I'm talking about the 1978 version. Oh, you're talking about the OG one. Yeah, which had Donald Sutherland... uh, (laughs) (laughs) And um, who was the other guy? There was more more recognizable people in it. you know who else is in it? Um, Jeff Goldblum is in it as well. Oh, fucking titties. Yeah, so it's... It, it, I love that movie. Leonard Nimoy, too. It's So that movie it like presents a San Francisco that you just wish you could live in. Mm-hmm. Like, I wish I could just go to these places in San Francisco and it would look exactly like it does in this movie. Mm-hmm. But a lot of that is because he's just really good with CGI. Um, a lot of this, the scenes in this film, when they're actually on crime scenes, are not even taking place where they're, where they're shown to be taking place in the film. Mm-hmm. It's just sets that are created on a soundstage with a layer of CGI over it. That's really cool. And he also doesn't use fake blood. Like He, he CGI's blood as well. He actually killed actors. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, you get this awesome scene uh, showing you San Francisco. You get the really, like, cool, like, retro mm-hmm. 1960s, 70s score, uh, which is interesting. Yeah, that's something that I really want to know is how good the the score is for this film. 
Like, it's a very period piece. Like, it takes music from the time. And I thought that was really cool. Like, it really good, does a good job of setting the setting up the setting, you know? Yeah. Well, the funny thing about that is the guy who actually does the score for Zodiac mm-hmm. is did scores for the nineteen for movies in the nineteen seventies, and he actually hadn't done scores for a very long time. So he knows what movies from that era sounded like. Yeah, that's really and specifically, good. I think he scored a movie that this movie is very similar to, and I only say it because. When we're talking about the 70s, particularly, we're talking about my favorite decade of movies. Most of the movies that are my favorite, The Exorcist, I love The French Connection, I love The Godfather, Uh, I love The Conversation, Mm -hmm. Uh, I love Star Wars, too, now, Mm -hmm. you know, which is 77, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, um, and All the President's Men, Mm -hmm. which was, you know, a movie that was kind of about the Watergate investigation, but it's told from the <clears throat> from from the perspective of news reporters mm-hmm. who are investigating it. So it's in terms of style, I think it's deliberately similar to this like this movie is deliberately similar to that. Mm-hmm. And there's a newer movie that also kind of does the same thing, Spotlight, which won the Oscar just a couple years ago and mm-hmm. is about the Boston uh, Globe reporters that discovered all the corruption inside the catholic church and covering oh, up okay. when they were covering up all the pedophilia and stuff like that so that movie does the same thing that this movie does where it's like it's a movie about investigators i was about to say would you call it more of a protagonist driven film i mean i'll say that the main character played by jake gyllenhaal like i i do like him mm-hmm. uh, robert graysmith as portrayed in the movie seems mm-hmm. like a really the most likable character in the film, um, but it is kind of an ensemble piece. Like, it's, oh, definitely, yeah. Like, I, I, I just there's a lot of there's a lot of really good actors in this. Brian Cox is in this. Mm-hmm. Um, the three principals are really great, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, there's just it's 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 a really like I love the character actors in it too. Mm-hmm. There's uh, who's it? Donald Logue, I think, who plays the uh, the. The chief or the lieutenant, whatever, um, who's supposed to be in Napa and then or Sonoma, and then there's the other guy, Elias Cateus, who plays um, the chief in Vallejo. Yeah, yeah. He's so. Sergeant Jack Mullinax. Yeah, and Donald Logue is Captain Ken Narlow, who, if I remember correctly, was the head investigator over at Napa. Yep. When um, they were doing the invest, when, or when they were coordinating and stuff. God, there's just so much that goes into this film. Well, yeah, because what's it called? The guy, you know, like Donald Logue, like is most famous, not most famous, but is most recently known for playing Harvey Bullock on Gotham mm-hmm. for the past five years. And then uh, Elias Cateas, who played the chief in Vallejo, like he was Casey Jones in the original uh, Ninja Turtles movies. Yeah, that was dope. So, <laughs> so anyway, getting back on track. So a month after uh, the killings of uh, Darlene Farron, we actually find out that Michael Majot did not die in that act, or in that shooting. Um, and a month later, the San Francisco Chronicle it gets an encrypted, an, like a cipher. They get a cipher and a crank letter from someone claiming to be the Zodiac. So right off the bat, this motherfucker gives himself his own nickname, and that fucking pisses me off. <laughs> Well, he doesn't in the first letter. No. The first letter is just him admitting to the crimes, and there was no name for it yet. Mm-hmm. So, 
that's the interesting thing to note. But it is such an interesting story that everyone in the newsroom kind of gathers around during their editorial meeting, getting yeah. ready to release. Newspapers used to do this, an afternoon edition. Yep. You would get would two do, editions yeah. of the newspaper. And it's funny enough, too, because like the San Francisco Chronicle is still around, and the building still exists. But most of it is actually filled with like Yahoo stuff now. Like like it's it's mm. like Yahoo offices that that occupy that building now. So, you know, it's it's again we live in a much different world than the one that's in this movie. But um, this is where you really get to meet uh, Robert get, Downey's character. Yeah, you meet two of your three main players, who are Robert Downey Jr., who plays Paul Avery, a uh, crime reporter, kind of a hotshot pri- uh, crime reporter. Probably one of the better writers on the Chronicle at this time. And um, an awesome performance. Oh, great. Like, yeah. I, I think it's easy for us to forget because Robert Downey Jr. has mostly just been doing Iron Man and like <laughs> and Sherlock Holmes for the past decade yeah. that we've easily forgotten. And also, it's important to note, this is the year before Iron Man comes out. Mm-hmm. So he's not even that popular yet. He was a guy that... So in the eighties, he he did some of the Brat Pack, like John Hughes teen movie kind of stuff, and then in the nineties, he gets like his Academy Award nomination for uh, playing Charlie Chaplin, right? Mm-hmm. And he, you know, much like in the movie Less Than Zero, where he played a drug addict, like he dealt with a lot of substance abuse problems for a lot mm-hmm. of his life, and this was like one of the first movies that he was making when basically Hollywood was saying, okay, well, you can come back and start doing stuff with us now. Yeah. Now that you've kind of cleaned yourself up. Once and, he's on the comeback, you know. And because he's somebody who's actually experienced this, he's very good at playing the kind of rough side of Paul Avery because this guy does like become a drinker like, yep. and, and has a lot of addiction problems. And there's an authenticity with which uh, Robert Downey Jr. plays him. It's not that he's playing an alcoholic, it's that he is an alcoholic playing an investigator. Well, I would also recommend like just watching Less Than Zero. Mm-hmm. Not because the movie is anywhere near the same as what the actual book is, but his performance in that is fantastic as well for what it is. Is that, uh, never mind. Is that the one where he does sex stuff for money? Yes. Oh, that's what I want to see, Robert Downey <laughs> Jr. doing sex stuff for money. <laughs> So we also get introduced to political cartoonist Robert Graysmith, so our, the writer of The Zodiac. Played by Jake Gyllenhaal. So one thing to note is just the, the very polar opposites these guys are, where Paul Avery is totally, at least the way he's portrayed in the film, he is totally out there, he's like... You know, really rough around the edges, talks a lot of shit. Does coke at bars. Does no problem doing hard drugs in public. And then you got Robert Graysmith on the other side of the spectrum where he's just doesn't swear, doesn't drink. I half expect when in the bar scene, I thought he was gonna order a glass of milk a la Kennedy. Like he is like totally a straight laced dude. The most important thing to him is his kids, you know? And it's crazy that these guys can relate. Yeah. He's you. Except for the fact that I swear like a sailor now. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. And I spend most of my time with my kid. You're so boring now. <laughs> now I just need to like investigate a serial killer. Now you just need to become obsessed <laughs> with a murderer. But yeah, like for all intents and purposes, these guys have nothing in common other than the fact that they both work for the Chronicle. So they're totally polar opposites, but the thing is, 
Graysmith is a fucking nerd. A nerd to the point where he kind of like is able to um, infer a lot about the Zodiac based on the cipher. In, in this cipher, or I'm sorry, in this letter, Zodiac threatens to, I believe it was, he threatens to kill like 12 people or something like that. He threatens to kill like a dozen people if the letter doesn't get printed, right? Yes. So, and he, he says that at the bottom of the cipher is actually his name. So if people are able to guess it, then they can guess his identity. But Graysmith, you know, right off the bat, he's the first person to say it. There's no way he's giving up his name because mm-hmm. that would ruin the game for him. Yeah. And then we and we we learn right away that the Zodiac is all about gamesmanship. So this takes us to the editors discussing what do they want to do, right? Do they want to set a principle where Zodiac can just kind of bully his way and have his way and get his attention? Or do they want to take care, more care about the public good? So, yeah, this is a time when media outlets are respected sources of information. And they, so they start coordinating with other uh, newspapers to find out what they're going to do. I believe it, the the San Francisco Examiner gets the same... And the Vallejo Times. And the Vallejo Times. They get the same cipher and they get the same letter. So what they end up what they end up doing is that they all, all three of them, I believe, decide to pose or to, to print the letter. And including the cipher. And right away, you understand that what he's looking for is infamy. Yes. Because these killings, these early killings are just taking place down, you know, near Vallejo. And he sends, you know, letters to the San Francisco Chronicle because he obviously wants the attention. And if you believe some of the theories about, you know, another potential Zodiac killer, the guy lived in San Francisco. So it depends on the theory that you want to go with. But obviously he sends it to the Chronicle because the Chronicle is a newspaper that could have a national appeal. For a point of reference, Vallejo is like, 30 miles from San Francisco. And at this time, Vallejo is a very rural town. Oh yeah. Like they even on the, they make the, the section where you hear the radio and people are talking about, it's just like farm kids, like being killed. Yeah. Like, you know, there, yeah, there's this part where they, they take those sound clips and you know, it's a small town like South, I'm sorry, North of San Francisco that would, Otherwise have no, like if it wasn't for Zodiac, no one would know what Vallejo was, you know? So I think that really reinforces the fact that this guy wasn't necessarily looking for, like to get his rocks off. It was more like you said, he wanted to be famous. And unfortunately, a big part of the investigation, in order to get a lot of the investigation done, they had to make him famous. They had to play his game. But they don't fully play it, right? Because mm-hmm. the examiner goes page five or page eight. Yeah. And then the chronicle only goes page three. So and nobody, he, like, he demands that it's front page and nobody actually runs it. They mm-hmm. run it in different places. So what ends up happening is that these two teachers, I think they were teachers from Salinas. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a couple in Salinas and... Uh, the way the way De- Graysmith described it in the book. So there's a section in this film where Avery and Graysmith go to a bar together to kind of discuss the cipher and they talk about like what some of the letters could mean and stuff like that. 
like you know like where they talk about the double symbols and yeah. stuff that stuff actually in Graysmith's book was discovered by these people yeah. who were doing yeah. the cryptograph so it is a yeah i guess it's like a teacher or something uh, it's if and i remember correctly he he starts working on the cipher first and then his wife comes to join him mm-hmm. and he almost gives up on it but his wife is the one that like kind of forces him to to, yeah. to th- them to just go through it together and i think it took him about a few days to get the entire Zo- thing done in the zodiac podcast i remember they actually had a excerpt from the daughter of the of the teachers who said that they would stay up till 3 4 in the morning like sleep an hour and then get ready for work <laughs> because they were just so enthralled by trying to figure out what this cryptograph uh or I'm sorry what the what the cipher was trying to say right and we're talking about a cipher that went to the CIA to went to the US Navy code crackers to the FBI it went national like it went to national agencies and of all the people to figure it out it was actually these two teachers out from out from the cuts you know yeah. So, they and like you were saying, they had that moment where uh, Graysmith and Avery go to this bar and they're talking about these coded letters. And that's where we start seeing Paul Avery and Robert Graysmith um, developing this relationship. Yeah. Kind of a friendship, if you want to call it that. Um, I honestly, what I think it is, it's more of a mentorship where Graysmith, like, he's starting to look up to Avery yeah. to a certain extent. He respects him. And because Avery, even when even when Avery is, has now left the Chronicle, he talks to the guy who eventually replaces him and says, there's a great man who used to sit yeah. at that desk. So they have a, a mentorship relationship. I think the thing is, Robert Downey Jr. is just really good at being Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> so if you watch, like, you know, if you watch him in The Avengers and if you watch him in Spider-Man Homecoming, like, he, yeah! he does this <laughs> all the time. That is exactly how you should think of it. He is Iron Man, Jake Gyllenhaal is uh, Tom Holland. <laughs> because that's exactly the relationship he takes on. He begrudgingly takes on this kid that he starts teaching him, like, hey, you want to be an investigative reporter? This is what you got to do. So, in the meantime, we actually... The second filmed murder takes place at Lake Berryessa. This is the scariest part of the whole movie. So, it's not really a horror film, but this is the part of it that I think everyone remembers. If you it makes f- everyone's best scene, best horror scenes like list all the time. Yep. And because it's, it is the most theatric of all these Zodiac killings. Mm-hmm. And this is, and it's important to note, this is the first time Zodiac switches uh, weapons. Mm-hmm. And mo- up until now, the only, the, the murders connected to him have all been gun related. This is the first time he uses a knife. And we're talking about a, like a huge, like six inch Bowie knife. Like a hunting knife, yeah. Yeah. So we are introduced to law student Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard. Who are hanging out at Lake Berryessa out in Napa. So, there is, depending on what story you hear, if you take the what happened in the movie, then this was a very quick, like, very quick scene. The reality is, the ordeal that Cecilia Shepard, specifically Cecilia, and that Hartnell went through took days it is probably the most grim of all the zodiac killings because it is there's so much more to it than just what's shown in the film so in the film so this is what we get in the film 
So it starts out Hartnell and Cecilia. Hartnell and well, I, I should just call him by his first name. Brian and Cecilia are are, lay, are laying on the are laying in the grass and just kind of like enjoying the sun. Cecilia notices someone in the distance, but Brian just kind of you know shrugs it off, doesn't think anything important. So the man does that. The man does that Michael Myers thing from the original uh, Halloween, where he just like very like he glides behind the tree and then you see him out of you see him out of sight and that same fear i felt when i watched halloween was the same fear i started feeling here well because this is where he gets theatrical right this is the one where he's not just where you're not able to see his face he is wearing a bag over his head he's got like satanic symbols like on him Mm -hmm. and wearing all black and stuff like that so everything screams executioner and then on his chest, he has a marking of what looks like crosshairs. It looks like crosshairs on his chest. And he comes out with a gun. And immediately he tells these kids, give me your wallet, car keys, and all your money. And Brian immediately tries to defuse the situation and tells him, hey, you know, it's, it's all right. I'll give you my, you know, throws it. He's like, I need to grab my keys and my wallet. He takes them out. He puts them there. And then, you know, it still has him at gunpoint. And he says, if you want, I can even get you, I can even get you a, a, a check. I can write you a check if you want. And then, you know, Cecilia is telling him, please don't hurt us. And then Zodiac takes out these, ro- this rope from behind his, from his back. And he gives it to Cecilia and tells her to tie Brian up. And so she comes up behind him, starts tying him up while, while Brian's on his knees. And then, you know, like, and I'm, I'm glad they verbalize it, but he starts whispering to Cecilia, I I can take the gun away from him. Like if he gets close enough, I can take it away. But at this point he has no reason to try to fight back because he thinks, oh, if I just like give in, this guy will leave us. Well, yeah, because if you're someone who's involved in a robbery, most of the time you're under the assumption that whoever's robbing you just wants your stuff. That's it. And has no intention to hurt you at all. So when you think about it in those terms, you know, your money or your life. Yeah. It's money every time. Yeah. Material is not going to make that big a deal and you just want to protect yourself. And everything this guy says gives him the impression that nothing bad is going to happen to him. He says, I just want your money. I don't want to hurt you. I'm going to take your car and I'm going to drive down to Mexico. And he talks about how he escaped prison out in Minnesota. So honestly, he's rambling and it's really fucking creepy because it's incoherent, right? Because I mean, Minnesota is nowhere near California. So when you start thinking of it logistically, I don't expect them to think of this. They're, you know, fighting for their lives at this point. So, you know, Zodiac, after Cecilia ties up uh, Brian, Zodiac comes and ties up Cecilia, and he and he calls him out. You know, Brian calls out Zodiac and says, "How do I know that the gun is is even loaded?" He shows him the loaded gun, puts the magazine back in the gun, holsters the gun, and pulls out his knife. And why? And this is all out of frame. And while Cecilia and Brian are looking at each other, and he's trying to tell her everything will be okay immediately just starts stabbing Brian. This is horrifying because in a horror movie, you would see this with loud music. There would be cutaway shots showing reactions and stuff like that. The fact that this is done so matter-of-factly 
it's done in broad daylight. Yeah. And there's no music. You're literally, like, the first thing you do is hear her screaming, and you don't know exactly what's even going on at first. But then, it that's when you do start seeing the actual stabbing mm-hmm. that he's doing to her and him. And it's pretty horrifying. Because, and that's the thing, like, Zodiac doesn't say anything, he doesn't grunt, he doesn't... There's no... Like you're saying, there was nothing to indicate, like, any sort of noise. It's just... It's happening. And that's it. There's nothing you can do about it. He turns his attention to Cecilia and starts stabbing her. And the way their ordeal ends in the film is that it immediately cuts to uh, Brian back at his car where um, Zodiac had, in like a black pen, a black Sharpie, mm-hmm. had drawn, had written the date and their names along with his symbol. Now the yeah. crosshairs now being synonymous with Zodiac. But that's not what actually happened. What actually happened, if I remember correctly, the last time I heard about this was a couple months ago back when I was listening to Zodiac, uh, Monster, or Monster Zodiac podcast. Was that actually after the ordeal when Zodiac left, Brian crawled while hogtied yep. to try to get help. Yes. And he told Cecilia to wait here, don't move while he does it. And with like, I don't know where he gets this strength. but he Adrenaline. Just... It has, <laughs> it's adrenaline. Because that is, that, that's part of the, so what he does is he starts crawling away. There's a dentist and his son who are mm. there on some sort of fishing, like fishing trip, trip or something, yeah. right? And they happen to come across them. There's some nearby hotel that's, you know, however many miles away that uh, they get taken to. And this is and this stuff I know because I listened to Grace Smith's book. Like this is out of his book. Yeah. Um and they go to this hotel, you know, <clears throat> they have to call an ambulance, but because yeah. of where they are, like the closest like ambulance is takes miles away. Yeah, it takes um, a long time for them to get any sort of help. And it and it details like what happens when the adrenaline wears off and the insurmountable pain that Cecilia is in as she's like, you know, before she dies. In the and, entire time I remember hearing that Brian was just praying to God. He's just praying, give me enough strength to get her help. And he managed to, unfortunately, but only after a lot of suffering. And because she didn't even die at the park or she didn't even die at Lake Berryessa. Mm-hmm. If I remember correctly, you'll correct me. She died on the way to the hospital. Yes. Or did she die before? Or, I mean, no, I'm, no, I'm no. At the hospital. Yeah. I think she died at the hospital even. So their entire ordeal takes hours, not necessarily just the couple minutes we see on frame. And that's what's terrifying about this. Yeah. And then it's after this killing that he ends up sending the letter to the San Francisco Chronicle with his name in it. Mm-hmm. And that's when you really start to get a lot of the rapport between... Um, Avery and Graysmith. Avery and Graysmith. Because Graysmith starts noticing some patterns in the way Zodiac talks in his letters mm-hmm. and some of the things he leaves behind. And one of the main clues he leaves are references to... The short story, The Most Dangerous Game. Where if anyone remembers from high school, was when Count Zaroff, General Zaroff, I forgot what his name was. But his, uh, he had this murder island where he would shipwreck people and then he would hunt them. Because he got so bored of hunting animals that he got more out of hunting men. 
So that and that's where the line "the man is the most dangerous" came comes from. And apparently, this is a huge inspiration for Zodiac and his motivations as well. Mm-hmm. And so, this is the part of the movie that, I, again, when I was younger in high school, it was my bag. Like it was hitting me in all the right spots. It felt like a horror movie and true crime at the same time. Yeah, which was awesome because I loved unsolved mysteries and those kinds of documentaries and stuff. Um, right after that, it, I think pretty pretty quickly after that is when it jumps into the the third killing in the movie. So this is what's crazy, and this is a little bit true crimesy. Sorry, this is when Zodiac breaks pattern. Well, I mean, technically the Lake Berryessa attack was when he broke pattern because that's when he became theatrical. But at this point, two weeks later, so he's up until now he's waited months in between the attacks. He waited months from the from the Christmas Day attack because I mean Christmas to July, right? And then I think he made he waited that's what eight months, mm-hmm. and then from July to I believe whenever the Lake Berryessa attack happened, that was maybe two months or something like that. This is two weeks. So what we see is we see the progression of this serial killer who no longer likes just the you know he doesn't need to take that long to plan these attacks. Not that I even think he's planning these attacks, but I think what he's getting off more at this point is just the toying with the with the police. He's toying with the reporters and investigators. So it feels like, to me, this is just me putting on my true crime podcaster hat on, the thrill is less the murder, even though he claims it is. To me, his real thrill is fucking with people. After these murders, and that's why he's stepping up the his 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 output at this point. Well, the third kill specifically, it, it of course it changes the pattern because he shoots a cab driver now. Mm-hmm. But I think the idea behind it is this is where he hits prime time. Yep, because he's in San Francisco now. Yep, no and, longer in the cuts. And homicide detective. Uh, Toski is now going to get involved in this case. Dave motherfucking Toski. <laughs> <laughs> Who was played by, this was my first time seeing him in a movie, Mark mm-hmm. Ruffalo. So everything about Dave Toski is just swag drip. You know what I'm saying? He's got the, uh, he's got the, uh, the bow tie, uh, the way he wears his gun. It's like an upside down, uh, holster. To, for easier access. Yeah. And he, even even Gray Smith in the movie asks about it. He says, oh, he wears his gun like Bullet, which for those who don't know, is uh, 60, 69, early 70s, uh, Steve McQueen. Uh, late 60s, yeah, Steve McQueen. late 60s. Um, and that's when uh, Avery tells him that, that Bullet, Bullet got it from him. Yep. So, so that's, a hu- that's really cool. It's a huge line. And it's true, by the way. I believe Steve McQueen shadowed... Um, yep. He shadowed Toski before that role. And then, um, so everything about, and everything about Toski, and this is like confirmed whether it was through Graysmith or whether through other avenues, everything about him was he's a hero celebrity cop. He loves the attention. He loves being the center of attention. He loves talking in front of the cameras. He is that guy. He's a showman just as much as he is a cop. So we get introduced to him. And his partner, unfortunately... (laughs) His partner gets kind of a raw deal because no one ever remembers Bill Armstrong. Well, also because Armstrong like leaves. The yeah, funny I, thing about Armstrong is that Armstrong is considered to be like a really 
not that old, attractive, like, like he's like kind of an Adonis figure, but in real life, but in this film is played like, you know, the sidekick detective. Well, part of it is the fact that because Toski's attitude and his personality is so bombastic, Bill Armstrong, if I remember correctly, I could be completely wrong, and if anyone wants to correct me, feel free. I remember he's a lot more like straight-laced, quiet, and all about his job. So, compared to the hero cop that loves talking in front of cameras, you know, who's the one that people are going to focus on? And that's going to be Toski. Yeah. So, it shows them arriving at the crime scene here. And this is a scene where the music is so good. Mm-hmm. The CGI backdrop of the crime scene is fan-fucking-tastic. And uh, you find out this is where he broke the pattern. He shoots the cab driver, uh, Paul Stein. Um, it was witnessed by a few kids who were across the street at a house. Yep. It was during a party on a Saturday night. Yeah, this, and, I'm sorry, this is a little thing. I remember listening to a snippet where one of the kids that called in were talking about how they they thought it was, uh, at first they thought it was like fireworks going off. But then they're like, what? Why is there like fireworks in the fall or like close to fall? And then when they see this guy walk away, and they get kind of a description, but we learned that they actually get the description wrong. Which, you know... <laughs> I knew you were going to say something Yeah, about yeah, this. yeah. Because, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, talked about <clears throat> the, we talked about a lot of the deficiencies with law enforcement and how they handle things. If cops were a little less racist, or if this entire department was a little less racist, then they wouldn't have somehow... Un, like everybody just kind of like, oh yeah, yeah. For some reason, they made the mistake of thinking it was African American male that shot the cab driver, and that's why two officers <clears throat> that were there on the scene that actually saw the guy who that becomes the sketch that him. is Zodiac. Oh my god, that's the most infuriating part. Is those guys fucking could have had him because he even he. I don't know if they talk about it in the movie, but. I know for a fact, like, based on recordings and shit, he talked to those officers. Yeah. And no, he no, told when they, them. When, when, they, when the officers question, like, when Toski questions them later, they mention that they, they talked to this guy. But, you know, even in Graysmith's book, the guy was, the Zodiac Killer was wearing all black clothes, like, very dark clothes, so you could not see the blood on him. Yep. And the officers don't get out to question him. They just kind of drive by and ask from outside the wind, from, from, from the side of their car if he's seen anything because they were looking for a black male. And he just, you know, all he has to do is answer a couple questions and they go on their way. And this guy just sneaks off into Presidio Park and never is to be seen again. He sends them on the wrong way. And it's so infuriating that there was so many times this guy should have been caught. And we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. You know what I'm saying? Oh, it's so infuriating. But it just adds, right? It just adds more to the lore and adds more to the mystique. Yeah. So, Dave Toski, Bill Armstrong are assigned to the case, and they start working with. They had, we get to see the whole the lovely bureau, bureaucracy behind police work. Sometimes this is also kind of points out how smart the Zodiac killer was, because a lot of his killings, besides the Paul Stein one, 
were done in areas where the jurisdiction is very foggy. And yeah, it's very questionable when you're talking about county lines. And this movie just kind of like, even though true crime and FBI research and all this kind of like pulling information stuff, even though that kind of stuff is more common now, you're talking about a time when police departments didn't really cooperate that well with each other. And there's a lot of stuff where some guys have some information and other guys don't have others. And even Toski doesn't find out a lot of more of the details of the case until it's Graysmith that brings it up to him because Graysmith is talking to everybody. Yep. So we see, and not only that, we also see the difference in resources in some of these uh, in some of these departments. Like there's that scene where Toski, or I think Armstrong, is like trying to call I think Napa, and Napa, and he's like, "Yeah, we can we can just fax over. We something. can telefax it. Oh yeah, he's like we can telefax, and then he goes, "Well, we don't have a telefax machine." <laughs> But he says it so like fuck you. Yeah. I'm just like damn, and you can tell it's totally a dick measuring contest between these three uh, departments, where it's like if you're Vallejo or Napa, you're like no, we have like it happened first with us. Like we should try to get the caller. And meanwhile, San Francisco, you had this big dick cop, and he's like no, like you guys are out of your depth. Let me do my thing. So it's really crazy to see all this like. Like, jurisdictional stuff going on. And all while, someone claims to be Zodiac. Or someone, yeah, someone's claiming to be Zodiac. Continue sending letters, taunting the cops. Sending letters to the, uh, to the San Francisco Chronicle. Where he's threatening to shoot school buses... In sniping the kids as they run around. But again, the word choice. The little kitties as they come running out of the bus. Important later. Yeah. But then... Um, but this is where it jumps into... He's just killing people. To now he's trying to get supervillain fame. Yeah. Because he's now stepping it up to domestic terrorism. On how he's going to shoot kids coming out of a school bus. And homemade, making homemade bombs and stuff like that. And at this point, the public is captured by it. Like, it's become such a big story that when Graysmith is coming into the office, he sees that everyone is inside the editorial meeting because everyone wants to listen to yeah. the Zodiac letter along with the police officers. Mind you, again, from recordings, ba- from, from other sources that I've followed up on for this episode, like, to, d- to describe to you guys what was going on, like the San Francisco PD sent out patrol cars to um to escort school buses in San Francisco. Like they had to coordinate with the school districts in the area so that there was proper prote- protection. There was there, off-duty cops that were riding on yeah. public transportation. There was helicopters overhead following bus routes. He like Zodiac had threatened to like ex- like create like IEDs like explosives on the side of roads like it was terrifying during the I can't imagine what it was like living in San Francisco just expecting one man to go on this Joker-esque like campaign against the city because like you said Zodiac wanted to be a supervillain and he was trying his hardest to do it Mm. oh god dude and you know this is uh, shortly after that is when you get the scene of him calling into the Melvin Belli show. Yep, 
And uh, again, I love the time period and I love just living in the world that this is in because there's a lot of realism to it. Like uh, the station KGO, is that's Channel 7 still for us in the Bay Area. Like these are actual channels. KGO, Cron 4, like these are channels that still exist to this day. We still get our news from them. We still (laughs) watch... I still watch Raiders games on, you know, on CBS, KGO, you know, like. Yeah. So uh, there's apparently a show that was uh, called, you know, that I forget what it was called, but it uh, it was hosted by uh, someone named Jim Dunbar and his, I guess, like guest on the show who was kind of co-hosting with him was Melvin Belli, who Mm -hmm. in this movie is played by Brian Cox, Uh, which is funny because Brian Cox, like, you know, a few decades earlier in Manhunter actually plays Hannibal Lecter. So he goes from playing the serial killer to the, you know, now the kind of lawyer who wants to get him help, or at least is telling him he wants to get him help. So Bella is kind of like that. He's like the in-between guy. Yeah. Cause whoever this guy is, he calls in and says he wants to talk to Dunbar. And again, he wants to get famous and that he'll tell him everything that he wants to know. And he wants to clear the air. So, he ends up, but he wants to call like three in the morning or something crazy, right? So they get they get Dunbar out of bed. They take him down to the studio, and he's like under police escort with uh, Toski and Armstrong, and they meet up with Belli and they and they set up this phone call. And an important detail that I just like that this movie goes into, and they don't make such a big deal out of it, but they bring it up all the time. Is that Toski is always eating animal crackers? Yep. To the point where I wanted to bring animal crackers, like to, to this, this episode, review. <laughs> uh, especially because those boxes of animal crackers, like I used to eat those when yep. I was in elementary school, and now I feel like every time I go to a store and look for them, they're like in plastic containers instead. So it's very it's, Palumbo, you know, yeah. like it's very like a quirky detective thing. Yeah. So it's like he even even Belli makes a comment about animal crackers being all over the floor of his car. <laughs> Just super mad about it. So what ends up happening is this guy ends up calling in. And he goes on this nonsensical rant. and But he agrees to meet Dunbar, I believe, right? He agrees to meet Dunbar and, Bell, and um, Belli the next day at like 10 o'clock in the morning. So I forgot where he wants to meet him at. Somewhere in San Francisco. So the cops end up canvassing the area, and I think Dunbar even makes the joke, wow, you guys really know how to make a, a secret meeting secret or something mm-hmm. to that extent? I And I love that Brian Cox plays this exactly like he played Hannibal Lecter, like to the point where, oh my, 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 you boys sure know how to put that's, on a secret meeting. Like that That's is, what it was. If He's you so watch, sarcastic if you watch, if, Yeah, if you watch Manhunter, like that is, there's a level of snark. Mm-hmm. And just distaste that he speaks to Will Graham with in that movie that I feel like he kind of carries over into this a little he's bit. Like a, he's like, nowadays, he's like your 17-year-old Reddit user. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's just a total dick. But what ends up happening is nothing. Yeah, Nothing comes of it. The The Zodiac never shows. And what they end up finding out is that he's actually a, a uh, mental patient from a local asylum in the area who right. just wanted his minutes of fame, right? So it's crazy how much Zodiac has a hold that now other people are also able to fuck yeah. with investigators, you know? And, you know, then after that they go through, like, the 
tons of people who are coming forward saying that they are the Zodiac Killer. Yeah, or they know <laughs> someone who might be the Zodiac Killer because that's ex-husbands and boyfriends and shit. No, and then too, like, that's the thing where they, they with, in Graysmith books, he talks about how they withheld a lot of case information from the public because there was certain details about Zodiac killings that they did not want getting out there to everyone because the point was that everyone would come in and say that they were the Zodiac killer and they needed certain details that would help rule out all the crackpots. Because it's also important to note that at this point, after the Paul Stein's murder, Zodiac actually starts sending shard, or starts sending uh, pieces of his shirt mm-hmm. over to or uh, along with his letters to prove that he is who he claims he is. So all these crackpots and half-baked theories and conspiracies like immediately get debunked by the cops, and they end up shutting down a lot more of these than they than they do, right? Or that they actually take serious. But in the meantime, they do have one suspect that they really like, one person who they think who they who they think is their prime suspect and who they think that this guy did and honestly if it was just based on circumstantial ev- evidence this man is dead to right zodiac well and because of the movie itself like the mo- this movie itself has painted my opinion of this case so much that for years up until maybe last year when i listened to a guy who runs a site called zodiac killer site uh you know, I think either Zodiac Killer site or ZodiacKiller.com. But he was a guest on a podcast that I listened to called Generation Y. Mm-hmm. And he goes over the entire Zodiac case where he breaks down some of the other guys that are not really featured at all in yep. this movie. Because this movie is, again... there's like eight main suspects. But because it's based on Graysmith's book and Graysmith's, like, you know, he, he is convinced... He thinks he knows who it is. He's convinced that this one suspect is it. That's why we spend so much time focusing on him. And again, I will say disclaimer, it's it, I don't know if this is the guy and to be honest, like my confidence in the fact that this is really the Zodiac killer is not that high at this point in my life. Mm-hmm. But if you would have told me in high school, yeah. I probably would have believed it. Yeah. Just saying. And I also just love the actor that they got to play Arthur Lee Allen. Which was a actor by the name of John Carroll Lynch, who is really like creepy. He's oh, John Carroll Lynch either plays big dumb goofy guy or big dumb creepy guy, <laughs> and he manages to be both in this in this uh, in this film. And the reason why Arthur Lee Allen becomes number one suspect, right? He was a huge fan of The Most Dangerous Game. He sp- the, a lot of his writing, his writing was very, like the words he used, the words he chose, the vernacular, all very similar to the Zodiac. Mm-hmm. He liked Zodiac wristwatches. He owned firearms. Most importantly, he owned 22 caliber pistols, which I believe were used at one of the murders. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. But... He also, and, and you know, this would be quote unquote the smoking gun. He spoke of what it would be like to hunt man. And he also used the same threat the Zodiac had used years before where he threatened to shoot out a school bus's tires and snipe kids as they came out. Yeah, if this guy isn't the real Zodiac, there is so much there that just makes you want 
to him to be. And I'll say this. Movies that don't give you a quote-unquote satisfying ending as to what it is. Like, this could end very poorly. Because this movie is not going to answer the question for you. It's going to give you an assumption. Yep. But what I love about the way David Fincher does this movie is that because Graysmith is the guy who's convinced that this is his guy, there's a moment at the end of the movie where these two guys like finally meet face to face and it tells you everything you yep, need to know. To him, does. that is his satisfying answer. And that is why the movie, even though is incomplete investigation, it feels like a solid ending to that film. So while, so, you know, they have this really cool scene where Avery, no, I'm sorry, not Avery, uh, Armstrong, um, it was Armstrong, it was Toski, and there was one more person. Melanix. Was it? Melanix, yeah. The, so the, Mel- the Vallejo. Yeah. So they're all there to investigate Alan, and they have this very, like, tense interview where they're talking to him. And it's like... Well, yeah, because this guy is like... Some of the things that he says is incriminating himself. Because they don't even ask. Like It's like one of those memes where where like it starts with nobody. And then it tells you yep. like, just ridiculous over-information. And then he goes, oh, you're talking about that fishing trip where I threatened to kill some people? <laughs> yeah. No! Or like when he goes... Like when completely unsolicited, he tells them... Oh, those knives that I had was from a chicken I killed earlier. And it's like, we didn't even ask about those knives, dumbass. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And there's just so much tension between Ruffalo and Carol that it's fucking awesome. And it just like the very simple, like, I love the part where, where Ruffalo's like, uh, your watch, like, that's a cool watch. And then we get to see it's a Zodiac watch. We get to see that the symbol on the Zodiac. Uh, watch is actually the same symbol that Zodiac Killer uses to identify Well, the other thing, too, is that the thing about Toski is that, again, Toski's a super cop. Toski is used to getting his guy. He is used to seeing something from start to finish, and he's the guy you want in the case because he's had a track record of success. What pisses him off so much about this case is that there's a lot of stuff that cannot be proved in court, mm-hmm. so he cannot bring this guy in. As much as he wants to. And that's the thing. Arthur Lee Allen is not a good person in the least. And he actually, later on in the film, they mentioned that he goes to prison for, I forgot, like six years. Pedophilia. For yeah. pedophilia. Yeah. And he also, later on in his life, becomes really obsessed with the Zodiac Killer himself. Mm-hmm. And Toski just wants this guy so bad, but he knows he can't. But the scene I'm talking about specifically, I love when he goes, can I see your watch? And then he shows it to him. And then he goes, no, let me see it. But Ruffalo gives the line in such a no bullshit manner where I'm like, I'm so used to this guy being goofy Bruce Banner that I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. Like, he's going to fucking punch this dude. Well, and also just the way he ends the, the interview that they have with him. He says, I am not the Zodiac. And if so I was, good. I certainly wouldn't tell you. It was so fucking good. So what they end up doing is that um, they end up getting a, a search warrant for his trailer. Using handwriting, or a handwriting sample, some people that are able to analyze handwriting have given enough of a suspicion that law enforcement can run, you know, check his trailer. So they end up finding, like we said, the knives, they find guns, they find more Zodiac, like Zodiac stuff, 
but nothing is conclusive evidence that can put this guy away. And one of the biggest things that exonerates Arthur Lee Allen of being Zodiac is he does not match the physical description yep. that has been corroborated yep. by two, technically three different eyewitnesses on what Zodiac looks. Mm-hmm. Because Zodiac has been called what was the word you kept using last night when you were texting me no in Graceman's book he refers to him as stocky so he's a stocky under six foot curly haired piece of shit <laughs> but he's like this small guy in arthur lee allen i is easily over six feet 300 pounds you know like mm-hmm. he's a big boy unless unless arthur lee allen shrunk a couple a couple inches before he went out on a murder spree, there is no way that he can be Zodiac. So, again, I want to reiterate. While Arthur Lee Allen was not a good person, I don't think he was the person that should have gone down for the Zodiac murders. And that's what pisses investigators off. Mm-hmm. And while all this is going on, meanwhile... Investigators are invest are you know looking into uh what's his name? Uh Alan over here. Mm-hmm. Uh on all the while Avery's actually down following up leads down in Riverside. In Riverside. Yeah. So Zodiac at the while he's um while he's egging the police off or on, sorry, he's also taking credit for murders that are happening in San Francisco that are unrelated to Zodiac. Or he's taking credit for crimes from before. Yeah. So And also, like, simultaneously, while uh, Avery is following up the leads to go down to Riverside, uh, you have Great Smith's character, who is, uh, you know, who is, starts off as a divorced dad, is going on a blind date with a woman, mm-hmm. who is played by the really great actress, Chloe Sevigny. She's awesome, um, yeah. Who I... I love her in lots of stuff that she's in, everything up to Portlandia, but specifically, I think I really started like paying attention to her when I saw the movie Kids for the first time. Mm-hmm. Oh, she was in that? Dope. So, they have a little romance, or these two little nerds start hanging out and doing little nerd things together. But, you know, it's important to, it's important to see that right off the bat, Graysmith is way more interested in Zodiac <laughs> than he is... You know, his future wife at this point. And that's... And, you know, like... He he calls Avery's wife to confirm whether he's down in Riverside. And they stay up most of the night waiting for Avery to call back. Mm-hmm. And she even has that great line where she's like, This is the best first date I've ever been on. <laughs> where it's just them doing, like, true crime stuff, right? And then meanwhile, Avery's actually connecting the dots. Because there was some time that I believe... I don't remember if it was Alan... But there was some unsolved cases down in Riverside that actually connected, um, or had similar MOs and similar mm-hmm. like similar things were going on as the Zodiac case. And I've, I don't remember if Alan was down in Riverside at some point. Um, you know, I also don't want to put out half truths or anything, but I do remember that like Avery was following up on those cases. Mm-hmm. And not only that. We the it's at this point we start seeing the unraveling of a lot of these characters, you know, nineteen seventy eight specifically, I think is where we see everyone kind of 
you know, we do that jump forward in time and yeah. we see where everyone like ends up. Right, because the first scene where Ta- where Toski and Armstrong are together, he mentions Armstrong mentions that it's his birthday. Yep. And at this point in the movie, that's where you get, oh, oh, happy birthday, as like a, you know, oh, by the way, uh-huh. right? So you realize that the time is going by. And this is the part of the movie where if you're really into the serial killer, horror movie, action-packed first half, this is the one where most people that I knew you who watched <laughs> it started checking out. Yep. And that's because this is where the genre shifts into the procedural. And this is where you start dealing more with the passage of time. And trying to discover some of the details of this case. And the effects this case is having on everyone involved. And their li- yeah, like their lives and their families for some. Um, Tossie's wife, played by June Diane Raphael, it barely is in the movie, but she's recognizable, obviously, because I, I know June Diane from other movies and also from How Did This Get Made, the podcast, right? Mm-hmm. So she is, and, and you see that Tossie's the guy that doesn't really go, you know, he can get called out of the house at any time of night. Mm-hmm. And just is very dedicated to his work. Uh, Gray Smith is very dedicated to the obsession that he has with Zodiac. Because <laughs> he thinks he he knows it's Arthur Lee Allen. And he's coming at him with everything he's got. And also, it's important to note that at some point, Zodiac starts targeting Avery, of all people. Mm-hmm. To the point where the when San Francisco Chronicle like employees start wearing sh- buttons that says, I'm, I'm not, not Paul R. Yeah. Avery. <laughs> yeah. And this is where Downey's like, performance gets awesome, right? Because even this is where he really starts... He, downing know, sh- his, he downies it up for sure, because that's <laughs> when he really starts drinking and doing drugs. Well, I just think that, again, because of just how good a character he was in this film, I really think he should have been nominated for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for this and the houseboat scene that he has with Gray Smith later. Mm-hmm. Like, this is where you start seeing the spiraling down of him. We see that Avery, in 1978, quits the Chronicle, moves to the Sacramento Bee. Yep. And then we see that Graysmith, he's married. He ends up marrying the the girl. I forgot what her name was um, from his blind date. But she starts thinking that his obsession with Zodiac is less cute and more troublesome. And then we see that Toski actually gets demoted and busted out of homicide because he made the unfortunate decision of like, if I remember correctly, now he was messing around with like a radio DJ and the guy would tell stories and then like about Toski and Toski as a joke, quote unquote, a joke wrote letters to this DJ as Zodiac. Yeah. Talking shit about Toski. Mm-hmm. And the the guy, right? So the thing is, these were these letters then get sent to yep. San Francisco PD, and it's just a terrible look when right. your hero cop, whether a joke or not, is forging letters. It launches an internal affairs investigation. That's how serious this is. Yeah. Like, and to the point where it has ruined his professional career. And this is why we say Toski's infamous. Because as good of a cop as he was, he makes that, like, he just one lapse in judgment ruined his career. And now he wants nothing to do with the Zodiac case, mm-hmm. with the killer, with 
um, Gray Smith. However, well, he's also lost his partner too. Oh yeah, like Armstrong before, left. Like before this even happens, Armstrong just doesn't want to do this anymore and decides to leave the force and move on to kind of living his own life, right? And 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 without the Zodiac case, and Toski's the one that kind of gets left behind, like having to deal with all of that. And and uh, it's this is, but this is where I really, what I really like about this portion of the film is you start to see the relationship develop between Toski and Graysmith. And, you know, they have a short scene where they meet right up, right outside the Dirty Harry screening. Yeah, Where yeah, they're yeah, going yeah. through, like, you know, where Toski just kind of like... Because like, I can't fucking sit through yeah, this. It's like, it, he's just, you know, modest or whatever, I guess, is in this well, scene. <laughs> I actually read it as, this is bullshit. Oh, uh, maybe. Because Dirty... Well, it's a, Dirty Harry is a very dramatized version of and, it. And that's why, like, imagine, imagine this. It's it, Dirty Harry is like watching the Conjuring version of your real story. <laughs> but well, also, it's the con- watching the Conjuring version of your real story, and you having enough self awareness to be like, no, this is wrong. Yeah, <laughs> because that's exactly what happens. Toski's like so done with this shit because he knows Zodiac's still out there. And laughing at him and shit, and he's all like, "Well, fuck this movie," because that's not how that happened. Yeah. Oh god. No, and then um you know, like Graysmith starts really trying to get with Toski and find out all he knows about the yeah, case. And does. at first he doesn't want to. Like at first he doesn't want to give him details of the case and he's like, Look, we don't talk about open investigations. Yeah. And then that's where he like does whatever he can to dissuade him. But once Graysmith really starts getting into like what he's learned about the codes, uh details about the investigation, like in terms of books that were missing from the library and stuff like that. Where like, Alan lives in relation to the fair or Well that comes Fahrenheit. later in oh, okay. in the film. Okay, but this me. first well, this first like diner scene where they have it's just kind of like the introduction where where Toski is like, Alright, well let's see if this works because he goes, I can't tell you like I can't give you any details about this case. I can't give you anything about what I know right now. I can't tell you to go see such so and, and such so a person. over at this department. Yeah. yeah. Which is where he sends Graysmith finally to go talk to the sheriffs and or like the police officers in Sonoma and Vallejo. Yep. So he starts seeing all these cops. Uh, all the while, keeps taking sick days to go see yeah. these cryptographers, to go see these people that analyze handwriting. Because he is so convinced that Lee Allen's his guy that he keeps taking like... He keeps uh, taking these letters to these guys for them to analyze. Uh, he ends up losing his job. His his wife takes the kids. I think her name's Melanie. She ends up taking the kids, moving back to her parents' house. And the entire time, he's just like, oh, they'll come back. Yeah. And it's it's actually, it, it's well, sad. Well, it, it is sad. And it's also the fact that he's so focused on this. She gives him really good insight on what's happening because she understands that the Zodiac Killer is someone who's who lives off of attention yep. and also just is very good at threatening people who are trying to go after him. So once this really starts getting into you know his research for his book, that's where he starts getting the phone calls that yep. have heavy breathing. You know. uh, a staple of Zodiac as well was just the heavy breathing calls. Yeah. So he starts getting these, and instead of getting frightened, he just hangs them up. But Melanie, the entire time, oh, but what about your kids? You know, what about us? And then she has that great line that really, like, kind of hit me in the feels, 
was when she says, um, this is the first date that never ended. Mm-hmm. And I was like, damn. Because it's true, that's how they met, right? Or they, that's not how they met, but that's kind well, of. Well, I could also just again. imagine that that's what it feels like when a marriage ends, right? Yeah, you know, it, it's like it, like God, God, I hope I, n- I never get there. You know, like mm-hmm. everyone wants wants to hope that the relationship and marriage that they're going to be in lasts forever. But this is one of those things where you really feel the end of a partnership for something. Yeah. Which is unfortunate, right? Because she's such a likable character. She is, and you almost hate him for being so like so uh disconnected because she supports him in a lot of his bullshit and like she did a really like she put up i think way more than most women would have in those same situations and that's why i was like i was rooting for you i wanted like robert gray smith melody forever man (laughs) but unfortunately it just didn't work out and she's done with it she takes her kids or she takes their kids, which, mind you, include his actual biological kid that's not her kid. Yeah. So she takes them because, at this point, he's just so obsessed. You well, know? I mean, yeah, sure. He probably could be with his mother because, you know, the kid also does spend time with his mom. That's not here nor there. <laughs> but, yeah, no. The, we're, the, not, we're not here to debate <laughs> semantics. After okay? this, you know, this is where he goes to meet Avery on the houseboat. Ooh, this scene was so fucking good, man. Yeah, this is the, again, this is the Robert Downey, you should have been nominated for an Oscar scene. He is completely out of it. He's completely fucked. He's drinking all the time. And that's actually like a joke, right? Someone makes that joke that, oh, um, like they were referencing. They drink like Paul Avery. Drink now. like Paul Avery now. Like yeah. that was just a reference to like how bad when someone drinking bad. Yeah, they were talking about the, the, uh, the handwriting expert. That's right. How he became just like Avery. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and this is again, is a part of the movie where, like, you know, be, because we're so used to seeing movies that over dramatize things and try to make the story too neat. And too well put together for narrative purposes. This is the scene where you really think that he's going to be the guy that picks Avery up out of his funk. And brings him back to work. And, and they're going to go catch Zodiac together. <laughs> yeah. Which that doesn't happen. That's In not... fact, Avery completely fucking turns on him. Uh, he wants, again, he's one of those people that wants to move on with his life from this. To the point where he's the one who brings up. He goes, more people die on the East Bay commute than this guy ever killed ever. It's like, um, why are we obsessed with him? Exactly. Yeah. But he also does admit that he's obsessed with him. Yep. And it, but except he doesn't deal with it the same way that Graysmith does. Toski does whatever he can to ignore it and move on and just dedicate himself to his work. Um, Avery cannot get over it, and instead, it becomes a reason why he delves deeper into substance and alcohol abuse. Mm-hmm. And Graysmith is obsession. Yep. And everyone has their vice, and. I honestly believe Robert Graysmith's was the Zodiac. And I don't think many people are going to debate me on that. No. Is that, you know, that's where he felt he was getting fulfillment, power, whatever it is. Whatever gives you good feelings, right? Mm -hmm. And it's at this point that Avery, I'm sorry, not Avery. um, Graysmith actually gets a, a break. And he ends up getting a call one night expecting it to be um another zodiac call right Mm -hmm. and melanie's there and they're arguing and then he ends up taking this call and it's someone that claims to be a friend of the zodiac Mm -hmm. and that they know who the zodiac is and they give him a name richard marshall 
And so Graysmith does his own investigations onto who Richard Marshall is, who I believe he's like a projectionist that works at a movie theater or worked at a movie theater. Well, he's not the projectionist. He's the guy who the projectionist said worked with him at the theater. Oh, I'm sorry. And drew the posters. Because he ends up tracking down the guy who called him. And he finds out that Richard Marshall was the guy that drew the posters on these. This scene. Besides the actual killing at, at Berryessa, is the second most terrifying scene in the movie. It was so fucking well Because done. this movie is telling you the entire time that Arthur Lee Allen is the Zodiac killer. Yep. And to the point where you're like, alright, well this Rick Marshall guy, you know, he, he, ain't he, shit. he, he doesn't feel like the real killer. The Riverside killer didn't feel like the real killer. Um, you know, it's like, it's like, it'll be the same deal here. And they never explain it. It's just one of those things where he never explains it. Mm-hmm. And he go, the projectionist takes him down into the basement. He locks the front door after That's Gray so Smith comes in. And I did it not just, notice that, dude. It, yeah, so after Gray Smith comes in, he locks the door behind him. And then he takes him down to the basement. And it's one of those things where it's like, this is the point where for Graysmith it becomes real. The kind of danger that he's in because of what he's looking for. They do this wonderful like play with the with the ceiling because they go down into his basement and he makes that joke. Oh yeah, you don't really see many people with basements in California. Which is something it's that true. They, yeah, which is something that is very focused on by the San Francisco Police Department. Yeah. And they talked about the kind of stuff that Zodiac would have been doing and the kind of space that he would need to occupy sometimes to work on these projects. Yep. So, so they there's this part But it's been so long since that moment you forget about that it. That you've forgotten about it. And you've also forgotten about the fact that there are horror elements in this police procedural movie. So this is the part of the movie that kicks you back to that first act. You get that you get that creaking in the floorboards and then Gray Smith asks Marshall, Hey, is there somebody in the house? Not Marshall. Oh, I'm sorry, the projectionist. The projectionist. Hey, um, you know, are you, uh, is there somebody in the house? And the guy says, no, it's just me. And then the best part is right after he says, it's just me, he shuts the light off. And you're just like, fuck! I just shit myself! (laughs) And then Graysmith goes running out of the basement to the front door trying to get out. And he can't get out because it's locked. No, the part that fucking got me in this scene is where he goes, oh yeah, and you said this is Richard Marshall's handwriting? He goes, no, I drew those myself. Yeah. And that's when Graysmith's like, fuck. Yeah. You just see Jake Gyllenhaal look up and his face just goes, like, fuck. Yeah. And again, this is this is stuff that's based on, like, actual stuff that happened. So because there's no firm answer on who the Zodiac Killer is, there's so much mystery that surrounds this case. It's so fucking crazy. So as... After after Graceman's scared away, he, run, he ends up running upstairs. Finally, the projectionist lets him out of the house. He runs to his car, drives away. So Graysmith goes back to see a prisoner who knew, who, who knew Farron, who was friends with Farron, right? Yeah. So she he goes and talks to her, and she reveals that there's this guy that just went by the name Lee. Mm-hmm. And that he was obsessed with Farron. One thing to note that... Arthur Lee Allen, during his interrogation with uh, Toski, does not like being called Arthur. Yeah. He says everyone calls him Lee. Boom. Another reason why this motherfucker should be dead to rights, right? But neither here nor there. Well, the other thing, too, 
is that Graysmith doesn't know this. Yeah. This is a part of no the movie idea. that you're watching completely from Toski's point of view. And again, because Toski's not allowed to share a lot of the stuff of the case with Graysmith, you know, there's no reason to really know. And that's the and the, the what really brings him what really finally brings Toski back to actually talk to Graysmith about it is when he finds out that Graysmith arrives at the same sub- suspect as he did. Yep. Completely on his own. So what Graysmith ends up finding out from this girl is that this guy obsessed with Lee used to go, or I'm sorry, Lee, who was obsessed with Farron, used to go down to the waffle shop that she used to work at. And he would be, like, just constantly talking to her and always wanted to, like, talk to her, always wanted to be served by her. And she she would invite him around just to be nice, right? The thing is, Farron had a lot of like. Apparently, she was a very attractive popular woman. woman. Yeah, and, and uh, she had a lot of people that she got a lot of attention from. A lot of people, even though a she lot was of men. Yep, particularly. Per- yeah, to be and to be exact, and obviously, like she's she when she was killed, she was with a younger boy. So it's like you know she she was also you know with guys as well it wasn't not that not that i'm saying it's solicited attention because i'm not mm-hmm. but you know she was someone who was popular and she was also someone who was going out with guys i don't know if she was ever stepping out and if i'm the, the if i remember correctly uh monster zodiac does a really good dive into her personal life without mean too judgy mm-hmm. because she went through her own shit where she was in her yeah. own abusive relationship where she had to get out you know um and in the beginning when they're going to you know the area that they're sitting in that lover's, lover's lane, lane area like she's very clearly trying to get away from someone yeah and in fact like she probably thought that's exactly who came up and shot him you know but that's just me throwing stuff out in the ether but what ends up happening is the this woman admits that they would invite this guy named Lee to these parties and he would talk about a lot of the same stuff Arthur Lee Allen would talk about. Mm-hmm. And there was just this description fit a little bit too well. Discovering this, Graceman like rushes over to Toski's house in the middle of the night. <laughs> Toski like fucking hates Toski fucking hates him at this point. Doesn't want anything to, to do shoot with him. him. My <laughs> favorite part is he gets out of bed and goes, I'm gonna shoot him. I'm gonna shoot the motherfucker. <laughs> Yeah. I'm gonna get my gun. <laughs> Call the police. I'm gonna shoot him. <laughs> and, and you know he goes up to no, he goes, no, Robert, Robert, no, Robert, Robert, no. <laughs> like they just start arguing <laughs> to the point where the only thing that makes him open the door is when Great Smith yells, "It's Arthur Lee Allen." Yep. Which is the same guy that was Toski's favorite suspect from the very beginning. So that's when he finally agrees to go and meet with him at the diner. And this is probably. One of my favorite scenes of the movie as well is the scene where they're pouring over all this evidence. Yep. Um, this is the most satisfying part of the movie because these two guys, they don't have to be friends. They're not going to solve the crime together. Nope. They're just they're two not guys. Cops. They're two guys that arrived at the exact same conclusion and they're both like, yeah, that's right. We both believe this. And even though, unfortunately, no matter what, it cannot be proven because the evidence is all circumstantial. And, you know, it's to these guys, this is the closest they'll ever come to solving that case. And it gives Toski a little closure as well. He's finally able to move on past his life in homicide. (laughs) 
And that takes us to that awesome scene, the one you're talking <laughs> but about. But even before that, I think I mentioned to you off air that, you know, some of the scenes that they have together are just really cool. Like, because it is two guys that reluctantly are, like, you know, like, Great Smith wants his attention, but Tosky does not want to talk to this guy throughout the entire movie. Yeah. And I love the part where he finally brings up the fact that, you know, uh, that, that Darlene Farron would have this uh, male friend coming to their paint party and then that's when Totsky goes what's a paint party and then he goes it's a party where people come over and help you paint He's like that sounds like a terrible party <laughs> <laughs> fucking Mark Ruffalo is so good in this goddamn movie yeah. dude my favorite part about this entire conversation when they go through uh, all the evidence uh, where he links it to Arthur Lee Allen he mentions that Darlene worked at the Vallejo House of Pancakes and he mentions the address where they're at and then he mentions the address that Arthur Lee Allen was living at in his mother's yeah. basement. And he just with such conviction looks at him and he says, door to door, that's less than 50 yards. Mm -hmm. And Toski just kind of stops like it's a real revelation to him. And he just like is just blown away. And he goes, is that true? And that's like, when Grace Smith it. says, I walked it. That was so fucking good. That man. is the most satisfying... Th that's the most satisfying way that this movie is going to end. With them both arriving at that conclusion. Because, as we all know, this movie... Or, um, this, Although the movie ends in a somewhat satisfying conclusion, the book ends with a somewhat satisfying conclusion, this story doesn't. No. And it's ongoing, and the theories are always changing. Because, to a degree, we're always going to be obsessed with the Zodiac Killer. It's, uh, uh, I mean, I'll go a little bit into it later when we, I talk about if I like this movie or not. But um, as we, to you know, we get that, that awesome shot, that awesome scene, very, very short, where we, where we have um, Arthur Lee Allen is working at an Ace Hardware in Vallejo. So this is the 80s. This is years yep. past. Even though by this point in the movie they're not really aging the actors, but you well, kind of just you have see, to believe it. You see a little bit of gray hair on <laughs> you see a little bit of gray hair on uh on Toski. Uh the one that's most noticeable is is um Avery. Because yeah. Avery is doing so much shit that it just he looks so fucking tore up by the end of the movie. But you know, like Jake Gyllenhaal, he's relatively stays the same for the most part. Well, he was very fresh faced. I think he was still in his twenties when he did this movie. So they do this awesome scene where he goes into the Ace Hardware and just stares at Arthur Lee Allen and with such conviction and just like fire in his eyes. And Arthur Lee Allen notices him, but not like in a weird way. No, not like he has no idea who this kid is. But he just looks up and goes, "Can I help you?" And, you know, Graysmith just says no. Yeah. And, and it also just out. points to what he, and also just points to what he talks to his wife about, where she says, where does it end? And he just goes, I just want to be able to look at him in the eyes and know it's him. Yep. And that's exactly what Graysmith did. And later on, he, he goes on, he finishes his novel, he publishes it. We have that scene where um, where uh, Avery is watching from like a bar and he, he <laughs> with an oxygen a, mask with yeah. an oxygen mask while he's drinking and smoking and he and he just has that kind of look of admiration to the kid he finally pulled it off you know and that kind of brings that arc but also you get to see where all the obsession takes every guy 
where it literally ruined Paul Avery and drove him to the ground and how it destroyed Toski's career. But, you know, he managed to salvage his personal life. But on the other end, you have Graysmith, who couldn't save his relationship. He couldn't save his family. But, at the very least, he knows himself. He he was able to get that satisfying end to the story. Mm-hmm. And we get cut to an epilogue scene to, to finish the movie off, where an older version of Mike Michelle. Was it Mike Michelle? Yep. So they oh yeah, dude. Like first of all, it's to me it looked like the guy that played old Mike Michelle looks the same age as the guy that plays young Mike Michelle. <laughs> well it's funny because he's played by a different actor and this is the guy from Westworld and I He's think, from a lot of and things. He, yeah he was also in Psych, which you and I like were huge friends fans of a few years ago. He's in he was in Psych, he's in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, yeah. he's one of the Boyles He's like, he, or I'm Again, sorry, McPoyles. This movie is really filled with recognizable B-movie character actors. And it's so weird that, like, he, you know, he comes in and he co- he co- he flies into San Francisco. He goes and talks to an investigator. And the investigator starts asking him, like, you know, can you, look, can you identify the man that shot you in this lineup? And he points right at Arthur Lee Allen and says, that's him. Mm-hmm. Which you would think is the closest thing to solving this mystery possible. But interestingly enough, one of the other guys who was implicated in this case, who we did not mention at all. There's, mm-hmm. lots, of pe- there's lots of suspects that we just haven't mentioned at all that we won't be able to mention yeah. just because we don't have that kind of time to We're go also right? not a true crime podcast. Exactly. <laughs> but the reason why I felt to mention it is because it does directly play into something that we didn't talk about earlier in the movie, mm-hmm. which is the scene where you're looking at the, uh, at the woman who was driving by between Tracy and Patterson. Yep. Which again, these are other parts of these the are like area valley. that we know, yeah. and we actually had relatives that like lived in this kind of area. So these are highways that I've been on as well. These are super rural, like two lane highways. If you're going from the Bay Area to Los Angeles from the East Bay, you will probably hit this highway at some point. Yep. And um, so, what the guy who was, uh, you know, who picks up the woman with her ba- with her young baby first, he sets her up. Because he tells her that her uh, that her tire is coming loose or something, and then he, he flat, ends up yeah. like loosening it. But under the guise of fixing her tire, right? yeah. So that a few miles down the road, her tire actually falls off while she's driving. So it just so happens this guy, being a good Samaritan once more, quote unquote, comes in to uh, to help her, offers her a ride, but notices that the woman's carrying a baby. To which he says, "Oh, you have a baby." Mm-hmm. She responds, is that a problem? He says, no, I was just expecting you, though. And while they're driving, tells her he's going to take her to a gas station. They drive by the gas station. She says, hey, you passed the gas station? He says, that one's closed. Mm. But the way he says it is what's terrifying. Because he's no longer that good Samaritan. He's angry. Do you know what the other thing we hadn't mentioned is before we even get through the finish? And I'm sorry that we're going off on so many tangents in this episode. But there's so much here. Every Zodiac killing, they had a different actor play him. That's fucking cool. That's really fucking cool. they tailored the kind of actor that they got to play him in each scene to fit the descriptions that that everyone gave. That is crazy. So he... Damn, that is such good attention to detail. I didn't notice that. Yeah. 
So, and that's why it was important to mention this because because this guy doesn't look anything like no, and the, they, they the don't previous. and they sound similar, but they they don't sound the same. Like mm-hmm. no two scenes feel like you're looking at the same killer. Not at all. Which again, it gets into it. Just it just feeds into the mystery of it, and it plays into the fact that Zodiac is taking credit for shit he didn't do. In a lot of ways, kind of like ISIS, right? Mm-hmm. If you take credit for things you had no control over, it makes pe- more people afraid of you, and mm-hmm. that's the game he's playing. Yeah. So so he threatens the woman and her baby, and thankfully, like, didn't kill either one of them, and mostly just scared them. So if I remember correctly, when he gets to, like, a stop, or he gets somewhere, she's just, like, grabs her baby. And th- jumps out of the jumps car. Jumps out of a moving car. Yeah. And just is like, I'm gonna cradle my child and hope to God we're both okay. Yeah. And it's like, to make that decision, I'm like, holy fucking shit, that is terrifying. But the reason why I mention that is because the other suspect that this movie did not mention is a guy by the name of Lawrence Kane. And Lawrence Kane is important to kind of single out because he was the guy who uh, who looked the most like the Zodiac drawing Mm-hmm. that came out in San Francisco and this woman who had the most face-to-face time with the Zodiac Killer, this is who she identified as the guy that she saw. Mm-hmm. So, Mijot was much younger and Lee Allen just looked like the guy who was there but Lawrence Kane was the guy who this woman thought that she saw. So, it's, again, it, 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 there's even a part of you where it's like, God, there's like, so much stuff in here. It's like, you almost wonder if it is the same killer. Yep. And, again, this movie is just really good at planting seeds of doubt. Mm-hmm. And even though it's going to give you what its version of it is, it also just tells you. That doesn't discount some of this other stuff. This yep. is just what I think. Now, I want to go back to the car scene real quick because there, he, he has a very terrifying line that really creeped me out. When she said, or when she's like, so what are you doing out so late? And then he says, I just go around helping people. And then I forgot what the woman says. And he goes, oh, so you just go around. Uh, oh, no, she, she's like, so you just go driving around helping people randomly on the road. And then he says, they don't need much help after I'm done with them. Mm-hmm. And he, that's like the first like, oh, shit moment, right? Mm-hmm. And then he says something about, oh, after, it, was it? I'm going to throw that baby out my window and then I'm going to kill you or some mm-hmm. shit like that. So that's when she like panics and runs out. But just that creepy line that they don't need much help when I'm done with them. This is totally Zodiac's MO too. The going back and playing with his kills and playing with his potential. And threatening children. Yeah, he has zero problem Never kills children. He threatens it. Yeah. But it just like, it, again, it adds to the lore. It adds to the story, and it adds Lawrence Kane to the possible to the possible um, Zodiac suspects. Mm-hmm. You know. So yeah, if you really want to get more into specifics of this case, I highly recommend uh, either reading or listening to Robert Graysmith's book. Um, if you're if you're not trying to pay for an audiobook right now, mm-hmm. uh, go to Generation Y and listen to Generation Y's episode on the Zodiac Killer. Yes, please. Um, Generation Y monster. Um, there's a, I mean, there's plenty of true. Oh, for crimes. sure. Yeah. True, true crime teams that put on together a great deep dive mm-hmm. into this case. But they'll give you the kind of important details and interesting information that we couldn't possibly do that. Yeah, we're just two dudes trying to talk about a movie that but just be- happens to like coincide with a bunch of other cool shit. But because we've arrived here now, I think the only question left is, and I know your answer. Oh, yeah. 
But, you know, Javi, do we like this movie? I fucking love this movie. <laughs> and I'm also very biased, though, because I think uh, I also, I very much enjoy the subject matter. But I think whether it's the, it hits everything for me. It hits the, the, the horror aspect. It hits the investigation aspect that, like, that procedural that you were mentioning earlier, that procedural type of show. It, it you get to see these characters as like char- not just characters in a movie but you also get that realism to it because you know we get that end crawl mm-hmm. we get that end crawl at the end of the movie that tells us that Paul Avery died of emphysema you mm-hmm. know we get that that crawl that unfortunately Toski's career never bounced back no you know or- and we also get the detail to you know Robert Graysmith thought that the Zodiac Killer was Arthur Lee Allen forever, and Arthur Lee Allen ends up dying of a heart attack, and he chooses to mention that after, ever since Arthur Lee Allen died, he never received those heavy breathing phone calls again. Not to mention, also just throwing it back out there, the uh, Zodiac letters stopped while Arthur Lee Allen went to prison for pedophilia. Exactly. So, you know, they were growing a lot of weird details, but not here nor there. As far as an entertainment story goes this is really good and i felt that but i also feel like it's very niche you know because you really you can't go in there thinking you're gonna get a horror movie or a slasher flick because that's not what this is about yes it's about the zodiac killer and the zodiac story but like you said it's more about the main players around this story and it's about the effect that story has on these guys lives and because you get to see that part you know, you get to see what happens to them. So I very much love this movie. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend it. I love this movie too. Um, like I said, I saw it when it first came out in theaters and I wasn't sure how to feel about it. I fell in love with it when I had it on video. Um, 2007. To me, this movie is a forgotten masterpiece. And the only reason why it's been kind of not as featured as some of the other movies that came out that year is because 2007 was a really great movie year. The Departed came out. No Country for Old Men came out that year. Um, you know, there, I think There Will Be Blood came out that year. There like, was a lot of shit that There came was out. a lot of really fantastic films that came out in that year. But I think that this movie deserved to be nominated for Best Picture and should have been along with them as just the best movies of the year. And I think it didn't really get that because it got a spring either late spring or early summer release and i only know that because i was in school at the time (laughs) so it had to have been like at some point before the summer for sure or before the midsummer uh but you know had it come out later in the year maybe it would have been you know recognized but i also do love that because these guys have actually you know the three principles of this movie have been in much bigger films in this last decade it is a movie that I don't think we're the only guys that go back and re- revisit. I think a lot mm-hmm. of people would do well by going back and revisit revisiting them because he's, it's filled with really great actors. And I was super excited about The Avengers in 2012. Despite the fact that I am a huge fan of Edward Norton, I was really excited when I found out that he was going to be replaced with Mark Ruffalo. Because the prospect of seeing Mark Ruffalo and Robert Downey Jr. share the screen again <laughs> since for the first time since Zodiac was something I could not wait for. But, and they have awesome scenes together in the MCU. But Angel, I thought you hated Marvel. <laughs> remember remember how you were like Infinity War sucks balls? Well Infinity War does suck balls <laughs> and it will suck balls forever. <laughs> 
I'm talking about the Avengers, 2012 <laughs> Avengers. Oh my gosh! So, you got any ending thoughts for Zodiac? Uh, just that everyone should go and watch it. I, I one thing I didn't speak enough about is I really love the aesthetic. I just think it really did capture living in the Bay Area, and it captured like known landmarks and known, authenticity. Yeah. Authenticity. You think, and and because we live so close to a lot of these places, you get into the zone of where all these places are. I think a guy like you and I, or I think most people that aren't from here won't, will really take that for granted because they're not familiar with those areas. But like people that are from the Bay will definitely like find them find themselves getting really immersed because oh because it's shot by a guy who's from the bay about the bay you mm-hmm. know sadly it's one of the sadder chapters of our bay history but i think but there's was... so much in it about a nostalgic time in the san francisco and stuff like that that it is just something that you can't help but watch and i really appreciate that this is that this film was made to be entertaining while still being respectful of those who actually lived through mm-hmm. that ordeal, except for Arthurly Allen, but honestly, yeah. fuck that guy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I'm not. My heart doesn't bleed for him. Uh, world's smallest violin. <laughs> so uh, we'd like to thank everybody for joining us for this episode, and uh, we really want to thank everyone who's been interacting with us on social media. We're trying to post a lot more uh, often than we have been. Um, and we, I cannot wait because next week we are going right back into Star Wars. Yay! <laughs> where we're going to cover uh, Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. So I'm looking forward to continuing our series. Um, I'm glad we took a break to see something this good. Mm-hmm. And then we'll see how we feel about the Star Wars movie next week. And also give us suggestions for our next non-Star Wars movie. That would be lovely. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, again, uh, we'll talk to you guys next time. And uh, I'm Angel. And I'm Javi. Later, turds.